The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Turn to Hebrews 1 and 2. And today and next week, we're going to talk about drifting, like a warning against drifting. And um, this is important because it's something that we've seen often having a conversation okay in our in our guy meeting this morning at one point we were talking about how um so many people have 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 gone down this path we talked about uh the number of people that have walked away from the lord and i want to a lot of you right now are kind of reeling from this because you know somebody who has either walked away or turned away or is on the verge of that. So I want to talk about it. Um, raise your hand if, I just, this is just for my personal info, if somebody that you have considered a strong brother or sister in the faith, maybe you've done ministry with them, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody that has made an impact on you, has, is no longer walking with Jesus. All right, look around. Every hand pretty much is up, 90%. So how does that happen, um, and how do we keep that from happening? And before we get into this talk, I want to tell you, as by way of self-examination, what I believe the two things are. This is, not, this is not from the exposition in Hebrews 1 and 2. This is from ministry observation in 25 years. I want to tell you what I think the two things are that create this denigration or this downward spiral in people's Christianity. One is unmet expectations that you had no business expecting in the first place. Like somebody didn't disciple me properly. I thought the pastor was going to be investing in me weekly, one-on-one, or... I thought I was going to get to have this opportunity or be in this position of leadership and it didn't work out. The one thing that you're responsible for is stewardship of the opportunities you're given. And the second thing you're responsible for is your attitude in doing those. Okay. So this is not uh, like, I'm not ranting at y'all because somebody's out of line with this. I'm saying, looking back, like I can, there, there are these things that are kind of factors. And a lot of times these are the two things that trigger like a downward spiral with people unmet expectation they thought something was going to be a different way than it ended up being well I thought if I went and worked at Snowbird that one of the directors was going to you know really personally invest in me Um, and then the second thing and and then that expectation wasn't met second thing is uh, you feel like you deserve like, like more than you've been given in terms of position or status or whatever so I like, I think those are the two things that we've seen happen the most. So just share that with you, people that walk away. So, so make those points of warning. You feel that stirring up, like, I, I want this, or I want that, or I want to be in this position. I want to be in that position. Um, make a note of that and be aware of that. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 is what I want to look at, but I want to <clears throat> set this up. There's, there's one of three things that happen that can look the same one is people turn away one is people fall away it's a little bit of a difference and one is people become indifferent 
Turn away, fall away, become indifferent. Turn away, fall away. So why do so many people turn away, fall away, grow cold or indifferent? I don't want to give... Um, I don't want to give a bunch of examples, but I could, of people that have served on the summer staff and worked. And this is, we, we, we do this talk mid-summer because we want to put this in front of you. This is about the point where um, I think you've got time to respond to this, talk about it in community groups. We'll do part one today and part two next week. Part two is going to come from David's life. We're going to look at David. But how do you like like journey out your sanctification process it's a journey it's a long long walk if you live to be an old person even if you live to be uh if god if god only tarries and and your life only exists another year or two or five like it's like life is in one sense long in another sense it's very short we know that there's the brevity of life on one hand but on the other hand you start counting moments and you can maximize gospel impact and opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity to walk away or to fall away or to turn away. And I think that indifference piece is what happens to a lot of people. You grow cold or indifferent. Um, and there's, there's a lot of things that I think can happen to cause that. One of them is to, to lose Christian fellowship and community, particularly um, within the context of the local church context of the local church is important you'll see a lot of people say well i um i don't trust leadership in the church i've been hurt or i've had this bad experience or that bad experience um your your involvement in the local church is critical i think to biblically the way god has designed this and what we see in scripture to your development and growth and health as a person as a as a person of faith all right let's go to hebrews 1 and we're going to focus on hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 Okay, but we're going to start in, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It's a lengthy passage of, uh, well, it's 15 verses total that we're going to read. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end and to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd take this time that we have today and again next week in these two meetings and we talk about staying faithful, not drifting, not turning away, not growing cold or indifferent. I pray that you would bring to our mind things that we would keep in front of us, stay focused on, and I pray that of every one of these men and women in this room, not one of them would be lost, not one of them would turn away, not one of them would have, as we sit here, a false sense of salvation, that we would examine and search the Spirit of God in our lives, that we would wrestle with the things that that might pull us away, that we would, that we would fight to have attitudes of, of godliness and, and, and gentleness, that we would love one another, that we would choose to be engaged in ministry. I pray that this morning you would give us insight from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the verse we're going to key in on is chapter 2, verse 1, and it starts with the word, therefore, Okay. When you see the word therefore in the scripture, I think a good way to, to approach that is like when you have a professor that says, okay, listen up, this is going to be included on the exam. You ever have a professor or a teacher say that? What do you do? You dial in, you lean in, you get your, you get your, your you know, you make sure you're taking good notes, or you're writing good notes because you know that this information is highlighted information. This is how, so in the Bible, when you see the word therefore, it is highlighting information that we need to respond to. There are different places in scripture um, where the word therefore is, is most recognized. One would be um, Romans 8.1. There's therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what it's saying when we see the word therefore is it's saying based on what we've just learned, so if we break the book of Romans down, Romans, the second half of Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7 are talking about who we are in Christ, what Christ has done to set us free, how we've been removed from the burden and weight of our own sin and given freedom in Christ. And so because of what Jesus has done, here's how we should respond. That's the therefore. And so in in Hebrews chapter 2, the reason I read all of, verse, I mean, all of chapter 1 is because in Hebrews 2, 1, it says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. And we could say to what we've just heard. Because what he does in Hebrews chapter 1 is he gives a pretty exhaustive, systematic theology of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If you want to sum up who Jesus is, so what we would call the person and work of Jesus Study Hebrews 1 in depth, line by line, like dive, do a deep dive into Hebrews 1. Let's look at what he covers in that. Let's talk about what he covers in that. Um, as we do this, you might jot this down. Exposition precedes exhortation. Exposition precedes exhortation. What do we mean when we say that? Well, the exposition of Hebrews 1 comes first. Then the exhortation is a response to that. So faithful study of the scripture leads to and triggers a reaction to the scripture. We're always responding to the scripture. What happens when, uh, I'm going to keep 
referencing back to people who fall away or turn away. When people turn away or walk away from the Lord, when people drift or people take a progressive path, what they're doing is they cease responding to the Scripture as an authoritative source for their lives. Exhortation always precedes, I mean, exposition, exposition always precedes exhortation. If the exhortation comes first, it's just do better, be more kind, be loving, like care about people, pick your social calls and go hardcore after it. No, it's what is the exposition of scripture saying? So we want to be people who are responding to the scripture. So in uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 1, what he's doing is he's calling us into response to chapter 1. So let's Based on the outline in chapter 1, he's introducing us to the person and work of Jesus. First, he says he's the final prophet through whom God has spoken. Think of the role of prophets in the Old Testament. The, so we've been studying kings, 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 King Saul and King David. And we looked, uh, especially back in staff training, at the rise of the position of king. And we said, but this is a theocracy. The king doesn't have final authority, Right. Yahweh has final authority. Yahweh's still the king. So what he does is they say, we want a king. Do y'all remember this in staff training? We talked about, we want a king like all the other people. And God's like, okay, no, you get a king, but it's not going to be like other people because this king is going to answer to Yahweh. Remember that? And so what God does to balance the role of the king is he, ri- he raises up the position and the role of prophet. So in the Old Testament, you got prophets, priests, and kings. We're going to see Christ fulfill all of those in Hebrews 1. So the prophet speaks laterally. In one sense, he has authority over the king. But we see this get confused sometimes where a king will put a prophet to death or in prison. But the prophet is a position. God raises the prophet up to speak into the king and into the king's life. Okay, So Jesus is the final prophet. What is the job of a prophet? To take the word of the Lord and to speak it to the intended audience. Because sometimes prophets weren't speaking to just everybody. Sometimes they had a specific message to a specific people. And particularly, like think about, um, y'all know Friday night in the covenant um, sermon, when Nathan, you know, um, David says to Nathan, I want to build a house for the Lord. Nathan's like, awesome, go do it. And then, you know, the, the Lord tells Nathan, nope, go back and say this to David. It's a specific message. And sometimes you'll see God give prophets messages for the people. But a lot of times you'll see a prophet attached to a king. So like Nathan to David is primarily, uh, Nathan's primarily going to speak to David. So Jesus is the final prophet through whom God has spoken after Jesus, there's no more prophets in that order of the Old Testament where the prophet's taking the word of the Lord and giving it to the people. There's now, our prophet is Jesus. So the word of Christ, the gospel, the message that Jesus left us is the final message through whom God would speak. Number two, it says that Jesus is the creator through whom God has spoken. So he's the creator. It says, number three, he's the heir of all things. Number four, it says he's the exact representation of God's glory. Let's consider that for just a second. Um, That's in verse three of Hebrews one. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Let's consider this. 
when you think of the when you think of Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, this is different than being the reflection of the glory of God. The the way a ref, let's let's take let's take the sun and the moon. The way a reflection works is when we see a full moon and it's and it's lit up and it's really bright. The the moon the moon is not bright, is it? The moon is reflecting light from the sun. Did y'all know that? You did know that, didn't you? All the homeschoolers knew it probably. Um, <laughs> Public school folks, I feel you. Okay, did you know it? Okay, all right. So, the, you know, the, the, the moon's just a dark rock floating around out here. But when it's in the right position, the sun is moving past, you know, the sun's rays are bending around the earth, hitting the moon. So we see what looks like a really bright moon. It's actually a reflection, okay? So there's that aspect of Christianity. Am I reflecting Jesus? But a, but a better understanding of who we are as, as Christians is what Jesus is as the radiance of God, and that is where where my where my river people. Where's my river people? River guides, y'all. Did y'all have to do the long swim? Did we do that? Praise Jesus. We're still doing things right around here. The long swim. When you get so so for those of you that didn't go through this training, long swims where you got to get in the water and do about a three minute float in that really cold water it's you know sub like like subhuman body temperature like sustained. 15 minutes, you're done in that water. So you swim. If it's a sunny day and you get out of the water, the most amazing thing is to stretch out on the asphalt down there at the bottom put in, the second put in, and just absorb the radiance of the sun. It heats your body up. You can feel life coming back to like your fingers, you know, and, and everything starts to warm back up. And so Jesus as the radiance of God is not like a reflection of God. He's the heat and the energy that we experience. He's the person incarnate who is God in the flesh. Y'all tracking? You get it? So Jesus is the radiance of the uh, invisible God. It says he's, uh, so in, in that he's the exact representation of God's glory uh, number five, he's the upholder of all things. He upholds and sustains all things in the created order. Uh, number six, so we already saw that he was the prophet. Now we see him fulfill the second role. Jesus is the priest who provided purification for all things. How did he do this? He did this at the cross. The cross provided me with the only way to be saved. Therefore, it's the only message of salvation to a dying world. The cross shows me my need for a Savior because it reveals my sin. The cross provided the answer to all of God's promises. We surrender to the power of the cross, and we proclaim the victory of the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus is seated in victory at the right hand of the Father. He's the priest then who provided purification for sins. Having provided that purification, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. A priest sitting down symbolizes that the work is completed. The priest would carry out his responsibilities standing up. So he would sit down signifying that he's completed the responsibility. What was the role of the priest? The role of the priest was to atone for the sin of the people symbolically or, or by his act and his actions to, to make sacrifice. So the prophet takes the word of the Lord, gives it to the people. The priest takes the sin of the people, brings it before the Lord, and is an intermediary or he's a mediator. The idea is Jesus is our high priest, and it makes me crazy to think about Christians sitting and speaking to a human who's supposed to then be our priestly 
mediator. That, that, that totally tears down the priestly work of Jesus. You are a priest. He is our high priest, right? Jesus is the high priest. So, so he fulfills the, the priestly role of the Levitical priesthood. So we don't, we, don't have, we don't have Levites anymore who are priests, okay? And then lastly, number seven, so he's fulfilled the role of prophet, fulfilled the role of priest. So last, um, and uh, number seven is that he's the king of kings who sat down in the place of honor. So he's enthroned. He sits down on the throne uh, from which he will judge and, and rule over the living and the dead. So those seven things, like, man, Hebrews 1 lays out the person and work of Jesus. So listen, watch this. Based on who Jesus is, he says, therefore, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. How many times have you heard us say, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the, sometimes you might get, sometimes that may become cliched. Preach the gospel to yourself. Paul writes to the Corinthians, a really carnal church, a church that is being shaped by secular philosophy, society, and culture. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's like the American church. So it's maybe the church at Corinth is the one that we can identify with the most. For sure, there are things we can identify with. So he writes to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, past tense, in which you received, past tense. So as Christians, we received a gospel that was given, delivered, preached to us, Okay. This is why later the scripture will say, so therefore contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints in Jude. We're contending for a gospel and a faith that was delivered to us that we received. When you're the recipient of a message, you're not the author of that message. Y'all tracking with me? So I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, in which you received, in which you now stand. So in context for us, we now stand in the gospel that we received. We're now ministering by the authority and the power of that gospel. I would remind you of the gospel that you received, in which you now stand, and in which you are being saved. There's a future ongoing work of the gospel. So when, he, when, we, when we say, okay, think about what Hebrews 1 says. Therefore, fix your eyes on these things. Focus on Jesus. Remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. It's so that you'll stand firmly rooted in something that's immovable. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, then he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, always giving yourself to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we look back at all that Hebrews 1 says, and we pay close attention to it. We give you some thoughts on this in this warning. It's easy to read and learn about the Bible in an informative way. We've got to be careful with that, to just collect information. There's a, there's a New Testament professor at Chapel Hill named Bart Ehrman. He's a leading agnostic in our day. He would say he's an atheist, I think. Knows the New Testament in, in and out. He's learned and studied it, studied it in an informative way. This is why Jesus would say to the Sadducees who had memorized the whole Torah and all of the Talmud, which was extra biblical Jewish writings. You don't know the word of God. They're like, we've memorized it, jot and tittle, word for word. But yeah, but you don't know it because you don't know the power of the word of God. You can accumulate information. It's easy to have emotional appeal during corporate worship. It's another observation that we've got to pay attention to. We're moved to emotion in a worship service 
but we want to worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. It's critical that we grow in a knowledge of the Scripture, but that we also submit to what we learn and strive to understand. The Word of God will shape who I am and how I see God. And as we enter into the warning of Hebrews 2.1, we're being challenged to consider and examine deeply the person and work of Jesus. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to be reminded of who Jesus is. We're to remember what Jesus has done. We're to look to the cross of Jesus, look to the tomb of Jesus, look to the throne of Jesus, and look forward to the kingdom that he's going to rule and reign in. The work of Jesus is finished and complete in providing salvation, so we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we finish well. And he says this is important so that we don't drift, drift away from that message. And I want to consider the cause, pattern, and effect of people turning away, falling away, or becoming indifferent. And I want to consider this in five steps. First, there's the drift. There's the drift. We stop paying close attention to the word of God. We become careless and there's a, understand this, no one ever drifts toward holiness. No one ever drifts toward holiness. But there is a constant applied pressure in your life that comes from society, it comes from culture, it comes from your flesh, it comes from the world, it comes like, it comes from the enemy. There's an applied pressure. So like, if you're, if you're in the water and a river's moving really swiftly, then it's obvious you can see that, you can see that current. But a really slow-moving body of water, you may not even realize how far you've drifted. Have you ever had that experience where you're at the beach and you're playing in the surf and all of a sudden you look up and your condo or hotel or whatever is like half a mile up that way? You didn't even know. You didn't even know. It just, the tide drifted you down downstream or whatever and so there's a constant pressure so as a christian if you go into cruise control theologically spiritually emotionally mentally and you stop grinding out your pursuit of christ you stop preaching the gospel to yourself you stop remembering who jesus is you stop loving jesus well you stop loving people well if you just stop that and just think that you're maintaining, just know this, you're under an applied pressure that's moving you away from Christ. Now, I want to be careful how we word that because Jesus ain't going anywhere. It's not like, like if you're truly in Christ, he's not going anywhere. And I think this is important here. What I've seen, I've wrestled with this. When people begin to drift away, and as we work through these next four steps and we'll be done, when we go and try to bring them back, I have found that people who are truly believers, they're going to come back. Maybe not when we go confront them, but under the disciplinary hand of God or God's going to orchestrate circumstances in their lives, he's going to bring them back. Some of you, you have that kind of a testimony. You drifted or you turned away, you fell away, and God brought you back. But, but now, again, primarily looking at 1,500 staff that we've trained here, those who have turned away and never come back, I don't think they were believers to begin with. That's very scary, that you could play the game, do the work, go through the motions, think that you're okay. And this is where I think when we get, when we get to the second one, the second one is doubt. And I think doubting, doubting, is the check, doubting is the check valve. So you begin to drift. Watch this. You start to drift, and a check valve is something that like, um, okay, so... 
So imagine water flowing through a pipe and there's a one-way flap that's letting water through. And let's say that that's wastewater. You want that water to not be able to back itself up. So a check valve is a one-way valve that lets water through, but then closes and checks it so it can't come back through, okay? Doubt for the believer is not a bad thing in the right context and in the right like and, and in the right mindset. And let me explain. Because it can be a devastating thing. But let me explain. If you're a believer, I think what, what happens is you're gonna wrestle with doubt for different reasons. It could be that the enemy's attacking you, trying to destabilize you, because uh, James says in James chapter one that if you doubt you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed about it's it's this idea of instability don't don't doubt because it creates instability but doubt is something that like if you're a believer the opposite of faith is not unbelief i mean the the opposite of faith is not doubt sorry the the opposite of faith is not doubt the opposite of faith is unbelief y'all with me doubt and unbelief are not are not initially the same thing so a person who's doubting and wrestling with stuff, if you're truly a believer, you're going to come through that with a stronger faith because it's going to press you into a deeper knowledge of who God is. So doubt, I believe, can be something that's healthy if I press into it and wrestle with it. Because if I'm truly in Christ and I wrestle with these seven things that he says, and do I really believe that Jesus is all that the first chapter of Hebrews says that he is. And if I wrestle through those things and I go, yeah, I do believe that, that puts my doubt in place. And if I don't believe that, then I'm, then, then, then I'm rejecting the person and work of Jesus. Because to reject one portion of that is to reject him wholeheartedly. You can't say, well, I believe he's a great prophet. This is what Islam says. I believe he's a great prophet, but I'm not sure. Like, I don't think... He is the king of kings who is set down on his rightful throne. Or I think he's a prophet, but I don't think he's the one that created the earth. I think he was created. You've, you've rejected him. You, so to embrace these seven things in Hebrews chapter 1 is going to take your doubt and put it in its right place. I believe that doubt is an attack on faith. St. Augustine talked about this. Doubt is an attack on faith. So you begin to drift. What's going to happen when you begin to drift? The next thing that's going to happen is you're going to start to doubt. This may happen six weeks from now. This may happen six years from now. But every one of us is going to go through this. Don't be freaked out. Don't be scared. You're going to go through it. And your faith will be refined and proven through that process of wrestling with doubt. Doubt is an attack on faith. It's not the opposite of faith. The, the, the other side of this is what the enemy wants to do to someone who's not a believer is give them a false sense of security. He doesn't want them to doubt. So the progressive shift that you're seeing where people are walking away from the orthodox or historic Christian teachings of the faith, that which people have died to uphold, and they're turning away from that and redefining the exclusivity of Christ or redefining sexuality or changing the meanings of words in Scripture or changing the purpose of God in certain uh, institutions, the church or marriage or whatever. People that are reshaping all of that, what they tend to have is not doubt but a false sense of security. They believe in what, like they, they fight for what their new cause is. And so why, how could that be? Well, because they, they're, they're not wrestling with doubt. 
I believe what they're wrestling with is what the enemy would attack them with, which is a false sense of security. Yeah, we believe what we're doing is right. This call, the, the church has got to go in a new direction. We've got to adapt. We've got to change. Listen, y'all, the church is never going to adapt orthodox doctrine to cultural norms because how would you keep up with that? Five years ago, we celebrated Caitlyn Jenner. She won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award and she won it over against a paraplegic who, lo- who lost both legs in combat and then won a gold medal in the Paralympics. She won it over him, and now they're crucifying her because she said girls shouldn't, guys shouldn't compete in women's sports. You can't keep up with it. Do you understand? Do you feel that tension? You cannot keep up with the nuances of cultural and social change. The gospel doesn't have to keep up with that. Orthodox historic Christian teaching doesn't have to keep up with what's, what the changing tide is. We might try to figure out how do, we, how do we contextualize and minister to people, but the drift leads to the doubt. What happens when we doubt is we begin to compromise, and, and when we begin to compromise, we avoid the Word of God. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's like, watch out, man. If you've got any aspect of unbelief in your heart, that's leading you to fall away from the living God. So the drift turns into the doubt, and we have to address the doubt. If we don't, the third step is that we dull. We become callous. We abandon the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 5 in verse 11. It says this, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So we drift, we doubt, we begin to dull. If you've ever had a friend that went down this path, that's that point where just, they don't care. They don't care. When they're in the doubting stage, they'll wrestle with some things. They get to that dulling stage. They're like, I don't, I don't, I'm just not interested. I'm, just, I'm not interested. They, they become cold, cold. And then number four is the dropout. Drift to doubt, to dull, to drop out. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, says this. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What happens with the dropout is that we cut off fellowship and relationship with people that God has called us to live in community with. People that will know us, will hold us accountable to the word. The effect of this is broad and all-encompassing. It freaks me out when somebody quits going to church. It's a step in this process. Ah, And there's always a reason. I just need alone time. I just need to be, I I watch it online. There is a healthy vibrance that comes from the community of God's people worshiping together think about last night i had so many people come up to me last night and say oh my gosh when people are singing and that like it's do y'all ever stop singing and listen on sunday nights it's deafening and it's not we don't have a loud band it's it's unbelievably enriching but when you start to separate yourself from that corporate there's something biblically powerful that god has hardwired into us to worship together and i'm not talking about to just the camp services through the week to come together and to worship with god's people that tends to be the thing that that is affected when people drop out they separate from god's people and number five and this is the one that's so heartbreaking to me and this is the last one it leads to defiance we become angry at the word and angry at those who represent it and this is what we've seen happen a lot 
people become defined. Have you ever noticed how people will hate the people that they once served alongside of? I've seen this happen so much. We, the leadership team here, I'm not talking about we have a story or two or three. I'm talking about, sadly, a lot of people that served and ministered in this ministry that not only walked away from the Lord, have y'all noticed this, but then they hate you. They hate you. Why do you hate me? I don't hate, I don't hate the Easter Bunny. I just don't believe in it. I'm not mad at it. You know what I mean? It's like Doug Wilson's two tenets of atheism. There is no God and we hate him. Why do you hate something you don't believe in so bad? Because the scripture is very clear that imprinted on the heart of man is an understanding, a moral compass as an image bearer of God. And once you've set under the teaching of the gospel, surrendered either in heart, mind, soul, spirit, or word to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you move away from that, there becomes a hatred towards it. This tends to be the last step you see. Defiance. People become defiant. There's people that hate. It's crazy to me that people hate Snowbird who served in this ministry, and I don't know why. And here's the thing. They've never come and told me why. So you know what I don't do? I don't worry about it. Because in the body of Christ, we've been given a clear biblical instruction on how to, how, to, how to communicate with each other. When you have an issue with a brother or sister, whether that's a ministry leader or someone a peer in your group, you don't have a right to not go sit down with that person. You don't have a right to. And I think what happens in this defiant stage is, well, I got a reason. I've already rationalized it. So I'm going to hate this ministry. I see it where people hate a pastor or a church. Or For us, it's, I, I feel it most effectively with people that, that kind of turn back on this ministry. But here's, what, here's what's crazy is that the Lord keeps moving and growing and advancing his kingdom through this ministry. And a person's venom or hatred towards someone else or some other ministry, all it does is, is it creates a personal prison that that person lives in. A person who's, here's the thing about, if you have resentment towards another person, you have resentment towards the church, you're mad at your community group leader because he didn't speak into your life enough as, or, or what you, you know, perceived it should have been. Or maybe it's back at school, you got a campus ministry person that you grow bitter with or a pastor that you felt like should have invested more in you. Here's what happens. When you grow angry with another person, you're the person that's negatively impacted and affected by that. Like, it'll control you. It'll control you. It'll rob you of your joy. It'll suck the life out of you. That defiance never ends up having the desired effect. So what's the conclusion and application? It's what we're going to work through next week. But I want to at least not leave you just kind of like, well, that was really discouraging and hateful. Um, so let's look at these four things that we'll drill into later. How do we respond? Number one, don't ever start the drift. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 1, pay close, he says, closer attention to what we've heard. In other words, the idea there is you pay close attention as you grow and mature and walk with Christ, continually be paying closer attention. You got to pay closer attention, always. The evil of the day is increasing. 
Number two, maintain an intentional submission to the Scripture. Intentional submission to the Scripture. In other words, approach the Word of God, surrender and submit to it. But you've got to do that intentionally. Otherwise, you'll do it casually. The opposite of intentional being casual. Number three, gospel ministry and gospel work has to inform and drive social and societal work. If we get this confused, we'll be in the current of societal and cultural drift. And that's a progressive drift. In other words, you want to take up a cause, the gospel and the word of God needs to inform that endeavor, not vice versa. When people get caught up in their social justice cause or their political cause, and it begins to inform their view of scripture, that's when the drift will also begin. That's super important. And number four, lastly, remember the grace that you have received and be someone who gives grace to others. Remember the grace that you have received and be someone who gives grace to others. All right, that was lengthy, that was long, um, but I hope it will create some conversation. Listen to me, I want you this week to unpack some of this in your fire teams and community groups. Start to build and prepare for what's coming this fall when you leave here and don't go down that path of drifting because it will ultimately unchecked lead to defiance and you'll end up actually not only not contending for the faith, You'll contend for your favorite cause or movement, but you'll, but you'll be resentful towards the church of Jesus Christ. So guard against that. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.